Welcome to Law Firm Movers and Shakers, a show where we interview firm owners, talk about their journey, and share their knowledge across social media. I'm Joe Bravo, Senior Brand Ambassador to Get Stepped Up and your podcast host. Here at Get Stepped Up, we help people delegate their weight to freedom. You can achieve more by doing less. And I know that in order for your business to grow, you need the right people with you. So stick around and I'll tell you how you can be a guest in our 15-minute show. Uh, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Law Firm Movers and Shakers. Today's guest is Brian Glass. Brian, thank you for joining us. Hey, Joe, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you today. Well, I'm very happy to have you because, uh, well, before the podcast recording started, I was uh, just speaking with Brian, and he was telling me a little bit about uh, the way that it, he likes to handle himself as a man and as a lawyer. So it's very interesting for me to know. Brian, can you introduce yourself a little bit, let people know who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm Brian Glass. I'm a personal injury lawyer in Fairfax, Virginia, which is about 20 or 30 minutes outside of D.C. Um, I'm a, I do auto accidents is my primary uh, area of practice. We have a couple of slip and fall, a couple of dog bite cases, but primarily I'm representing people who've been injured in an auto accident and who either have suffered a brain injury or have required a surgery as a result of that crash. And it's always on the plaintiff side against insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So you like taking on the big insurance? I like taking on the big insurance companies. So it's it's a challenge, right? Because the Geico's and all states and the state farms of the world have all of the money in the world to defend these cases. And me with my, you know, my little three lawyer shop here in Northern Virginia, we don't have unlimited uh, resources. And so it's a matter of taking on the client who has even less resources than we do and putting their case together in, in a meaningful way that's going to be impactful to present to an insurance company, number one. And if we can't resolve it with the insurance company to present, present to a judge or a jury. Mm -hmm. So let me ask about your growth journey. Like, how did you become the lawyer that you are today? Well, that's a great question. So um, I became a lawyer uh, following my dad's footsteps. So I'm the oldest of nine children, and I'm the only one to be a lawyer. Um, and frankly, Joe, as I was coming up in high school and in college, I just never had anything else that I wanted to do. I like being on stage. I like presenting uh, cases. And so the jury, uh, the, the jury pool really is a great place to do that. And so I started out at a general practice firm where we did a little bit of everything, but nothing very well for about six months. Um, and then I moved over to a, a local auto accident firm where I was for about 10 years. And then I joined my dad's practice about four years ago. Um, and coming out actually this January, will be our fourth year together. So I wanted to get out of school and make my own name and make my own reputation and my own friends and way of doing things before I joined him. And so for the first half of my career, we were competing in the same town for the same pool of clients. Mm -hmm. And now I'm curious, what what, the, what was it like? Like, uh, I, I imagine it was a friendly competition or did it get sometimes get like a little bit dicey? It was friendly at the time. <laughs> it never got dicey. Um, you know, at the time, this the firm where I am now, my dad's firm, 
they were handling many more medical malpractice cases than than we do now. And so, you know, we were really only tangentially competing for auto accident cases. And in Northern Virginia, Joe, there's so many auto accident cases and so many auto accident lawyers that it's not as though anybody has a has a really giant market share and that, you know, somebody's calling me and, and calling him and interviewing both of us and deciding which one to go to. So it was collaborative um, and it, it never really was hyper competitive between the two of us. Mm. That's nice. And and did you ever sort of like exchange ideas or thoughts on how to handle a case when you were at separate law firms? Sure. So we co-counseled on a couple of cases and we always shared discovery and, and templates. Um, and, you know, the Northern Virginia plaintiff's bar has a pretty good collegial atmosphere where all of us get together uh, either on an email serve or, or for lunch every once in a while. And, and we're willing to share with each other, you know, here's the struggles that I'm having maybe with this insurance company or with this lawyer, uh, or has everybody dealt with this adjuster before? I need some tips and tricks for how I handle this problem. So the plaintiff's bar, at least in our area, is is really friendly and collaborative in that way. You know, um, I'm really liking the attitude that I'm seeing because sometimes you get this this picture, and not that you don't have it. I'm pretty sure that there that, that you have a lot of it. Also, the background that you got right on uh, it it tells me a little bit about you. But you have. A very nice demeanor, the way that you say you like approaching big insurance. So uh, first, seeing if there's a way to get, reach a settlement, negotiate, and if not, then let's go to trial. So I do imagine that you have very strong trial skills. That's what you like doing. But your first approach is to be, uh, I see you as a very open person and not wanting immediately to get into a fight more than you're looking for resolution. Is that is that anywhere near the truth? I think that's a hundred percent accurate. And so, you know, most, most of my clients don't want anything to do with the courtroom and don't want anything to do with trial. Um, what you see on TV is not what you get. And so um, our job is to get our clients into a position where financially they're going to be doing just about as well as they would be uh, via settlement uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to going to trial if we can, and we can't always do that. Um, and I've, I've certainly tried my share of cases but in terms of the human cost uh, with aggravation and stress of going to trial and the financial cost of bringing doctors and you know blowing up medical exhibits and things like that, most, most, most clients are going to be better served by settling a case out of the public eye than they are by going to trial, you know, having having two or three days of stress sitting in front of a jury and having a jury decide your fate really with limited recourse after that. Right. So as long as the judge has gotten everything legally correct in the case, if the jury you know, misses something or gives you a verdict that's way too low uh, or on the other side, if they give you a verdict that's way too high, there's there's not a whole lot you can do about that. And so settling cases when it's appropriate to do so, gives our clients the control over the life of their case. And it puts them in the driver's seat with regard to what's going to happen next in their life. Okay. Okay. So you, I, I like that, that the, you got to respect your client's wishes and also your client's time, the, the, the budget that you have for this. Um, you get very emotionally invested when you, you have to go to trial or, or have to jump into a big fight. Now I'm wondering, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but because you said your father is a lawyer as well, and this is uh, the Banglass Law Firm, by the way, guys. So uh, you are a second generation lawyer or was your grandfather or grandmother a lawyer as well? No, second, second generation. 
So this attitude of let's try and settling things first, is this something that your clients are demanding or was it different in the previous generation? Because I've started to notice with uh, lawyers that have been pretty much all over with uh, over the practicing law over the last 30, 40 years, that mm -hmm. 20 years ago was very different. Like people wanted to go to mattresses right away. And right now the attitude is let's finish this faster. Let's do this a, a, a lot cleaner by, by working in such a way. So what do you think about that? That's a great question. And I don't have any data to back this up, except that there are fewer and fewer jury trials in Virginia every single year because more and more cases are settling. Now, there's a number of reasons that that could be happening. As everybody's practices are becoming more specialized, we are we are just better um, at figuring out what cases are worth, right? And so I'm in a better position to advise somebody on what their auto accident case with a back surgery is than somebody that does auto accidents on Mondays, criminal defense on Tuesdays, writes wills on Wednesdays, and gets people divorced on Thursday and Friday, right? And so, so you know, with that data point, and the fact that I only deal with insurance companies and I only deal with people that defend cases for insurance companies, I think we're just far better at figuring out what a case is worth. And insurance companies, by the same token, have many, many, many more data points. So as the technology has gotten better, you know, they they really have pinned down if somebody has X number of weeks of treatment and has X medical costs, here's what the case is probably worth, because these cases have been tried many, many times um, over the years in, in Fairfax and in courtrooms like ours. And so I, I think that we are better now than we used to be just because of the data at figuring out what's in the middle of the bell curve of results. And then can we get an offer and a demand that fits within the middle of that bell curve? Now, there are certainly lawyers, I, I was reading an email from a lawyer the other day, tried 22 cases this year, 22 auto accident cases. I have no desire to try 22 auto accident cases in a year. I don't think it's good for me, stress level wise. And I, it's probably not good for my clients, right? Because how much attention can I really be paying to any individual case if I'm that busy? And so I am happiest if I'm working on a small handful of files. So I try to maintain my own personal caseload of about 20 or 30 cases, all of which have a value of six figures or more. Uh, and, and that's where I feel like my bandwidth is the best and my time is the best utilized. And then, Joe, the other thing that allows me to do by not overworking myself is have time outside of the office to really do the kind of things that I want to do. And so I have three young boys, they're seven, nine, and four, and I'm privileged enough to be able to leave the office in the spring and in the fall at about four o'clock and go coach youth sports. So I've coached baseball, I've coached soccer. Uh, my passion really is being out there on the field with those kids. And it's not, you know, answering the phone here and taking depositions till seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night, right? Okay. Now, that is very respectable. I, I've started to notice how the lawyer lifestyle is changing a lot because 20 years ago, the mm -hmm. whole ideal of what a lawyer should look like and how, how they should be living their lives is completely different from what lawyers are looking for right now. Even the law practice has evolved. Like the pandemic threw everybody into a digital era a lot faster than people were already jumping into it. Uh, some lawyers actually saw it coming, so they started digitalizing their whole uh, practice. But... Uh, I've seen how those generations are changing. Now, I'm, I'm just wondering, did you have the same chance with your father or is this just something completely new for the lawyer of today? We were very fortunate that we had for many years invested in technology before the pandemic hit. 
And so we had a remote server and everybody that wanted to work from home could work from home. Um, there, we were seeing emails on some listservs that we're a member of where people were asking like, what's the best laptop to buy, right? That second, third week of April when the government wasn't letting people go back to their offices. And so we, you know, not because we saw the pandemic coming, but because we're technologically forward, we had all of these things in place to be able to work from home and pivot from home for everybody who wanted to work from home for as long as they needed to. Now me, because I had the three boys at home. I could barely get anything done for my house. So I was in the office um, just about the whole time, but you know, not everybody on our team was in the same position. You know, it's very interesting how the lawyer mold is actually breaking or changing because now I'm looking at lawyers that are technologically advanced and advanced uh, way before change demands them to. They're looking to settle instead of looking for a fight. They're looking for a, an, ad an adaptable or a, a worthy lifestyle of your time and of your family's time, which is something completely different from past generations. And I'm only trying to drill that in or not trying to drill that in because now I have the opportunity to talk about a previous generation of lawyer and a, a first generation lawyer, a second generation lawyer here. And for me, it's very interesting knowing how it's changing. So how the lifestyle mm -hmm. is changing and how you start thinking about the better use of your time. And you also mentioned something that's very critical for me. And I believe a lot of lawyers are actually looking into that today, which is how to avoid burnout. Like, it's not like you focus all of your time and all of your passion strictly in your work. Now, that doesn't demerit how good you really are at what you do. I think it actually makes you better because you're rested, because you're a lot more focused as if you were just burning out, constantly drilling the work. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, it's really timely that you say that. So we have a brand new lawyer in our office who graduated in May from William & Mary, and he went down actually yesterday to the Virginia State Bar in Richmond and was sworn in as a lawyer. And I asked him this morning how how everything went. And he's like, man, it was boring because they spent so much time telling us how lawyers are depressed, lawyers have anxiety, lawyers are alcoholics, lawyers get divorced, that, you know, if if this were your first, like if you were landed from another planet and this were your first exposure to the profession, you would say, why the hell does anybody want to be in that profession? So I very firmly believe the opposite. I believe that practicing law gives me the ability and, and owning a law firm gives me the ability to create the life that I want, which, Joe, if I wanted to be in the office doing depositions until seven, eight o'clock at night, I could do that. Um, and there there are lawyers that want to do that. And that's perfect for them, but it's not perfect for me. What's perfect for me is this healthy balance of time with my family, vacation, uh, athletic events. So we talked before we jumped on, you know, I'm, I'm an ultra marathon runner. I've run 70, hundred mile, 70 mile comma, a hundred mile races. Um, this year, I, I was fortunate enough to participate in a Spartan race team. So um, I've done a couple of those uh, this year. And then Saturday, I'm flying down to Orlando for the last race of the year with, with my team. I have these interests outside of the law and owning the firm uh, uh, has and having that entrepreneurial journey has given me the ability to do all of these things outside of the law. I don't believe that lawyers should be depressed, anxious, uh, divorced alcoholics. I believe that we we really occupy a privileged place in society and that it's our duty to live a life that fulfills all of our dreams because we have that that opportunity. Yeah, you know, that's something I started to notice as well. There's a lot of lawyers. First off, I think it's a very honorable uh, profession because every single lawyer that I've talked with or that I've spoken with, 
they've told me the reason why they went to law school or why they became a lawyer, it eventually lands with, I honestly want to help people, which is a very decent calling, if you ask me. And then knowing that you can do that with a very different lifestyle. Now, you just mentioned something that for me is very important and, and an entrepreneurial mindset. So it's not necessarily like you have a, the lawyer mindset. I think the entrepreneurial mindset helps you at being great a lawyer, great an athlete, great a father, great at everything. So I'm wondering, what's your entrepreneurial mindset like? So um, it's always growth minded. It's always about what's the next idea that's around the corner. And, you know, one of the things that you said there, Joe, was that people got into the law because they wanted to help people. And I have a little bit of a different take on that. So I think most lawyers would tell you that the people that they want to help are their clients. And yes, I want to help my clients, but the number one people that I look out for in my firm, uh, right behind my family, is my employees. And I know that if I can focus on the dreams and the visions and the hopes and the happiness of my employees, then they're going to take care of my clients in a great way. And so I focus um, less than the average lawyer on what is my direct experience with a client than what is my direct experience with my staff, because I know that if the staff is well taken care of, then the clients are going to be well, well taken care of. And that the best use of my next dollar an hour in time is focusing on training my people to be the best at taking care of the clients, right? Because I can only work with one client at a time, but if I have 10 staff members and I've worked individually with them and then they're handling 10 clients at a time, well, now we've, we've got a hundred X multiple on that. Um, and so my entrepreneurial journey really has taken me to, uh, to, to paying close, close attention to how happy and how fulfilled is my staff. Because the last thing that I want to do is have a bunch of unhappy people who don't like the clients <laughs> and don't like their boss working here. Yeah, that's also a very good, uh, it gives you a very good frame of reference of how you do, how you're doing things. Because I've noticed that business owners tend to focus a lot more about making the business work better for everybody that's in it than focusing on one specific thing or just themselves. So the position that you put yourself in is a position of leadership, which is I need to make sure that my people are well taken care of. If they're taken care of, then we're going to reach that goal. So did you learn this over time? Did you already have some sort of an idea of how this was going on? Or how did you develop that leadership mentality? I have 100% learned this over time. So three or four years ago, uh, I would have given you an answer that was much more me centric and much more about my hopes and dreams and vision. And, you know, through a couple of masterminds that I'm a part of and through the networking connections that I've made with those groups, I really have come to realize that that phrase about, you know, if you want what you want, then help a thousand other people get what they want. That, that really is true. Mm. So it's been, an, it's an evolution and I'm still learning. Uh, and I still take opportunities to to learn more about that. But yeah, this that, that entrepreneurial journey is a journey. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And now I'm trying to focus on that journey and on the people that are starting the journey, because I know this podcast is listened to many aspiring lawyers or people that are just beginning at their career. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of, mm -hmm. if you could share some type of secret sauce, like mm -hmm. letting people know what they could be doing or should be doing to reach the stage that you at the stage that you're in right now, what would you suggest to someone that's barely beginning their law career uh, for them to do in order to become, well, something very similar to what you've uh, become today or what you've achieved mm -hmm. today? 
So fantastic question and timely as we're here at the end of 2022 and you'll probably release sometime beginning of 2023 as, as people are, um, you know, setting out their annual goals for the next year. So I would, uh, the first thing I would say is that not everybody's goal is to be Brian, right? Mm -hmm. And the recognition that um, that what you want may not be 100% out there as a model for you to follow. And so the first recommendation that I would make to any young lawyer is to go and purchase the book Vivid Vision by Cameron Harold, uh, which is a book about crafting a vision for yourself of what your perfect life is like three years from now. And then after you've read that book, maybe two or three times, go off somewhere, either you know into the woods or to a hotel or to a coffee shop, sit by yourself and craft for yourself, what's my perfect life look like in three years? And so the logic behind that is one year uh, is probably too short to achieve anything really big. And as we get to five, seven, 10 year goals, those are pretty far away. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of things that might change in five, seven, 10 years, but three years is, is a good time window. And then start to work backwards from that to, all right, what is the next, what are the couple of things in the next year? And then in the next quarter that I want to achieve that will get me closer to my three-year vision. And then what is the next thing that I need to do this week that'll get me closer to my quarterly goals? And the more that you focus on your goals and the more that you focus on that vision, the closer you'll get to achieving it. But you'll you'll never get anywhere near achieving what your vision is if you don't take the time to think for yourself about what it is that you want, you know, without worrying about what the rest of the world thinks about what your vision is. So somebody might watch this and say, Brian's full of crap and all lawyers should work hard and the client should be priority number one, priority number two, and priority number three. And that's, that's a great practice for somebody, but it's not a great practice for me. And so you have to be self-aware um, of what you, what it is that you want out of your life before you can start crafting and getting closer to that for you. So it's sort of like being able to find your own voice and through that, find your calling and being able to plan because of that. Because if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. So uh, it's not an easy exercise, you know, because it does demand you to spend some time alone, start, start listening to your thoughts, to your own voice. And that's something that people don't tend to do. Not, not, not very often. Like people tend to drown themselves either with work or responsibilities in order to avoid thinking about life and thinking about the process that they, what they want to build. So they usually have an idea of what I should be getting, but they're not necessarily, or we are not necessarily doing all the steps in order to achieve that. You know what I mean? And the, the magic really is keeping those goals in front of you. So my experience is most people's goals fail because we write them down on January 1st and then we never look at them again. And so, so coming back to that piece of paper again and again, and sharing it with other people in the world uh, so that you have somebody else who's holding you accountable to making progress towards these things, I think is really where the power is. Yeah, yeah, those accountability partners. Now, which is, drives me to a very weird question about is, do you believe in having an accountability partner or making things public so you now have the pressure of, okay, I already made a promise, now I got to deliver? Both both. So I think, I think there's power in putting out your message publicly to anybody who is willing to read it. Um, but I think there's also a lot of power in having accountability partners. So I'm a member of a mastermind group. Uh, it's called GoBundance. It's an all-male entrepreneurial, uh, high net worth real estate investing kind of group. And one of the things that we do is we have our, our goal sheet 
for the year. And every time that we get together with somebody else who's in the group, and I have calls with guys on a weekly basis, we are going through what we said we were going to commit to for the year and checking off, you know, this thing is done. It's not done. It's on track or it's off track. And, and then what can we help each other with? So I think there's a ton of power in coming back to those goals with other people who are willing to hold you accountable to the things that you said that you wanted out of your life. You know, more and more, the more and more you, you speak, the more and more I imagine uh, how your career has evolved. So, so far as listened to, you got to learn how to plan. It's not all about being at the office 24 seven. You not, you got to know how to jump ahead of the curve uh, being someone that's very systems open. Even if the stereotype of a lawyer is not being like system savvy, uh, become part of different type of masterminds, find your network, find your accountability partners, find people that will keep you in check or that will prove you like also call you out on your bullshit. Sometimes if you, if you start, yeah. so I'm wondering, like respectfully asking what have been the biggest roadblocks in your professional career or in your life. And that people should be like aware that like, this might happen to you as well. Oh, that's a great question. Um, the biggest roadblock in 2022 for me has been imposter syndrome. It has, it has been the feeling um, that, that whatever I'm good at is not good enough. Uh, and, and it's been, it really has put the, kept me from putting the gas pedal down on where I think I can go in life. And so, you know, this, like, it's just the feeling that when you open your mouth, that everybody's going to go, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> and when you get over that and you get over your own ego behind that, I think you can go a lot of places. So I don't know what the, the biggest roadblock through the course of my career is. Um, but recently the biggest roadblock has been imposter syndrome. You know, and that's, I'm sorry, but the first thing that came to mind, that's coming from a guy that finished a, a hundred mile race in less than 24 hours. Like, like you are able to accomplish a lot of different things because I know that that same mentality that helps you to accomplish one thing, it also helps you accomplish another one. But it's really impressive that someone could have that. And also like, thank you for being so honest with that because it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of humility, acknowledging what's something that's hurting or that hurt this year instead of saying, hell no, dude, I'm perfect. But that's just not realistic. Well, and one of the things that I've learned this year about imposter syndrome has been that everybody has it and and that it's a good thing to have because it's a sign that your your progress has outgrown what your sense of yourself is and that your sense of yourself needs a little bit of time to catch up to where you are. And so... So yes, um, it's authentic to, to admit that you have it, but when you do, everybody else who's a high achiever in the room is going to say, I have that too. Yeah. It's like you, <laughs> you gotta be able to open up and face it. Otherwise, well, if you're the first one in the room, it also makes it easier for everyone else to say, okay, that's happening to me as well. So it's taking lead of acknowledging what's something that's like the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And, and authenticity is is hard to find, right? Especially especially among lawyers, <laughs> can be hard to find authenticity, can be hard to find um, people who are willing to be vulnerable. And so when you can get in into rooms and into groups with um, guys and girls who are willing to do that, um, it's an important room to stay in. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? One thing that I see that's very authentic about you is that you 
you describe yourself as not only a lawyer, like uh, you've mentioned it quite several, like uh, many times during this podcast, like you are not only the lawyer that focuses also like on settling and also going on, going on trial and the different ways of doing, but you're also the family man, the one that focuses on family. And that's one of the things that, or, or the biggest things that fulfills you as a person. And then you're also the, the, the sports athlete, the, the achiever in there, the, the, the one that knows how to work as a team, because for people that have never done one, and I highly recommend this if you have the strength, if you have the motivation, you need to go to a team race with a, a Spartan race, sort of like yes. a hurricane here or something like that, because it okay. does create yeah. a bond with people. It's a, it's an amazing experience, and it's something that you can learn that eventually you can port it to different situations. So I'm wondering, what have you learned from that world that has been introduced to the lawyer world or to the family man? So I would answer or follow up your question about for people that haven't done them should go and do them or that by saying that if you don't think you can do one, you should go and stand at the finish line and watch the number of people who look like you who are finishing that thing. And you'll be able, you know, you'll recognize that you can do it too. So one of the things that I did as I was training for a, my hundred mile race is I went and volunteered at other, other hundred mile races. And I said, you know, put me somewhere. Uh, so we have aid stations at uh, long races like that, where there's food and water and and soda and usually a campfire so that you don't have to carry all that stuff with you so that you can stay warm throughout the night. Um, and so I said, put put me at a station that's somewhere after mile 66. So after two thirds of the way through the race, because I just want to see what people look like as they come through, right? Uh, everybody gets a little bit of a lift at the finish line. So everybody looks pretty good in the last you know, last 10th of a mile usually. Um, but I wanted to see what people look like, you know, 24 hours into the race, uh, kind of beat up with still further than a marathon to go. So I, I just think it's important to recognize that no matter who you are and what you look like, there's somebody that's in your situation that's achieving the thing that you want to achieve. And so it, again, like observing that this can be done is is really important. Yeah, yeah, you you gotta you gotta believe it. You gotta understand that it's something that you can accomplish. And I imagine it's the, pretty much the same thing when you're struggling with personal things, or where you're struggling with law things, or where you're struggling at a trial. Like you gotta honestly believe that you can make it. If not, you've already defeated yourself. Mm -hmm. Has that ever happened to you? Oh sure, <laughs> sure, sure, uh, all the time. And and it's it's easy to find that point in in endurance events. So you know, any run that I go on the last, the last 20% of the run is really hard. It doesn't matter if it's a three mile run or a 20 mile run or, or 50, like um, the last 20% is the hardest part because you're, you're in this point when you're, where your mind is ready to be done uh, and your body can go a little bit further and you've just got to convince your mind that it can be done. And, and I'll tell you, you know, you can't do that all the time. Um, there are times where you have to stop and walk or stop and take a break or whatever. Um, and, but, you know, getting to a mentally tough place where you can then rally back and finish is it, it teaches you for the next time that it can be done. Mm -hmm. And well, I imagine if that's the type of thing that you coach your, your kids at, at, at all their, at all your games and also like all of their friends, because if it is, that's very strong advice. Yeah. So, um, so they're a little, they're young for that kind of mindset coaching. Um, but, but my nine-year-old in our, in our soccer tournament at the end of the season, he scored an own goal 
And so for people that don't know, the corner kick came in, he's on defense. He blasted it right into the back of our own net. And, and I think for a second, he thought he'd scored a goal the correct way. So he was happy. And then all his teammates got on him and, um, and I pulled him out, but at halftime I said, you know, okay, guys, it's a teachable moment, right? He made a mistake. Everybody's made a mistake. His three coaches, me, uh, Matt and Wes, like we've all, we've all done that at some point in our career. It happens. What can't happen is that the team all then gets down on him. And so, you know, if I ever see anybody criticizing their teammate again on the field, I'm going to pull you off and you're going to sit for the rest of the game. Um, and that was a lesson that they all, they all learned. So there's teachable moments everywhere. You have to kind of scale it to the age and the mindset. Um, but yeah, I try to instill in, in everything and in, in all of them, especially because it, at the rec league, um, which is where we play, you get kids of all athletic abilities who come out and say, I can't do this. And, and, you know, the, the little mind trick of like, I know that you think you can't do this yet, but you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, rather than that fixed mindset of this is not something that I can do and I'll never be able to do it. So being able to just kind of work to instill a growth mindset in kids. Yeah. It's a privilege. And it's why I like to shut my practice down at four o'clock in the spring and in the fall. You know, and, and that's also how you started part of this podcast, that growth mindset, which the exact example that you just provided, that's something that you can apply to business any day of the week. Like whenever a lot of businesses, you got someone that's 100% a team player that scores an own goal, but then they might start thinking, okay, I did the right thing. And then they start noticing, okay, it was a mistake. The whole team goes against them. That can be incredibly dangerous for a business because it can create such a toxic environment for people to work there. And who's the, the real people that are going to be feel that blowback are the clients, the people that have placed their trust in you in order to solve whatever issue that they have at hand. And now because of an internal issue, something that could be handled internally, something like that could be jeopardized, like someone's future, someone's uh, estate could be jeopardized. And knowing that, you know, it's such a, it's very interesting to me that you can get such level of insight and wisdom out of a simple sport or out of a very complicated uh, competition or, or, or sports event. And you can apply that to business. I'm wondering, I'm not wondering, I'm pretty sure that you've seen that probably throughout your career and also either learn from it or being able to switch that mentality from people like, hey, this is a team, it's time to huddle, it's time to become strong again, and we're not going to let that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so there's there's that. And then, you know, the counseling that I was giving to one of the other lawyers here just a, a week ago was like, you know, like you can either be right or you can help us get to the result that we want to get to. So arguing with clients and adjusters and judges, what it, like, you can be right on the the point of law and then you can lose the argument. But sometimes it takes a reframing on does winning this battle get us any closer to what the ultimate goal is, right? So there's a, there's a phrase that I like that's um, something like um, our job here is to cross the swamp. It's not to fight all the alligators. So having <laughs> having a clear picture in your mind of the goal and then thinking about does does the action that I'm taking or not taking, does it move me towards the goal or does it not? Yeah. Yeah, because if not, you're fighting against the current, of course. Like you're just looking for a fight. And that's not the point. The point is just like reaching the end of it. That's also why I think so many lawyers like yourself that have that mentality okay let's let's just <laughs> cross 
and not fight every single alligator in there. So that let's negotiate first. I think it's a lot more economical also like on the soul uh, for, for, for everybody's economy, for everybody's time. And it makes a lot of sense. It sort of fits the the the, the example of it's not necessarily always jumping into a fight. And it's something that's very unexpected for lawyers because they do or we do tend to have that reputation of every single time I notice that something's not going the way that I think it should be going, then I'm in it for a fight. And not necessarily. I think lawyers also have that ability of connecting with people and looking at a situation, an issue or a problem from a different perspective in order to solve it instead of jumping in for the fight and going for the throat saying, I am, I'm always right, you're always wrong, and destroying a relationship in the meantime, which can actually be very hurtful to families, for everything. So when you were talking about divorces, you're talking about personal injury. And even when it comes to big insurance, because big insurance always, like they always also have that theme of being way too big. I am always Goliath and there's no David on this fight. So it's very refreshing seeing that mentality because I think it is breaking the lawyer mold. I'm not sure if it's happening worldwide or statewide, but mm -hmm. I'd be happily surprised if it is. There are lawyers who want to fight about everything and, and you get that reputation and that's a hard reputation to shake. And so there are lawyers where, you know, when they ask me to do something, my first thought is no, because I know that, you know, he's thinking about something that I maybe haven't thought about. So like, I always, my mind always goes to, if I don't understand why you want me to agree to whatever it is you want me to agree to, like I'm probably getting screwed. And so, but that comes with the lawyer. It comes with the reputation of, you know, of having to fight every battle. Um, you know, I, I do think to your point about insurance companies, everybody's got different incentives. And so the frontline adjuster at an insurance company you know, might have a deadline coming up where she's got to settle a certain number of cases or or close the quarter out, right? And so just understanding what what is it that's going to help that person get closer to the, you know, the metric that they're judged on um, sometimes is is helpful to to getting cases resolved. So I've I've had cases where I just ask the adjuster, you know, all right, you're here, I'm here what do I need to do to close the gap? Do I need to hang up the phone and call you back? Cause some insurance companies track, you can only give away so many offers in a, in a phone call. You can only move, you know, 10% in one phone call. And so if I need to hang it up to, you know, talk to my client and call you back, I can do that. Or we can just resolve it on, on this case right here. So, um, you know, I, I try to be easy to work with. I try to be, um, which doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm not working very hard for my clients or not getting my clients the, the result that they want. Um, it just doesn't mean that I, I'm trying to win every battle everywhere because I don't think that's important. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I know what you mean. Um, just correct me if I'm wrong. Like it's not, if you're shouting and cursing, then you're not communicating appropriately. You don't need to always be violent and always strike with that level of impact in order to get your point across. Like it's easier for someone to listen to you when you're having a conversation. So if you're in it for a fight, I rather have that initial reaction of, oh, okay, I rather negotiate with him than immediately someone that already has that reputation of a fighter. And well, people already come to you with their guard up or within this a strategy of how I'm gonna take them down instead of, hey, there are 10 different ways of solving this. Uh, nine of them are easier and better for everybody that's involved and respectful for everybody that's in it. 
So, of course, when when you have that reputation of not only when you have that reputation, building that reputation takes years and years and years. So breaking the lawyer paradigm, like doing that paradigm shift of how they usually are, and then they start recognizing you for who you truly are and how you treat people. That's something to be proud of, I think. Well, and and if you're the guy who's always yelling and screaming and cursing, then when you finally have the case that's worth yelling and screaming and cursing about, nobody's listening to you. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so I got a question, though. What would you say to a 50-year-old lawyer? So I'm, I'm mm. only mentioning the age because it, it, it it's more usual for someone that's very set in their ways, have always been like that. And I've come across with a lot of lawyers like this. So someone that's always kicking and screaming, never wanting to negotiate, always being right. And it's it's ultimately hurting them. If you want it to drive a message or just to send them a message on how this is hurtful for them, what would you say to them? Well, I think the first question is, <laughs> is this a solicited opinion? <laughs> <laughs> did they ask for my opinion or I'm just trying to tell them? <laughs> Let's say that that's your opposing counsel. And I'm, I'm thinking that you've yeah. probably negotiated with people like that before. Yeah. So I think it's very hard to change people if they don't want to change. Um, and I spend very little time trying to change people who don't want to change. Um, what would you say? I probably would say something like, um, you know, listen, if your hair, if you're always acting like your hair is on fire, then the one time that your hair is actually on fire, nobody's going to listen to you, you know? Um, but the, the uh, I can hear the response, Joe, that it served me well enough to get to, you know, year 20 of my legal career and, and achieve some level of success. So maybe it's, maybe it's working for them. Um, yeah, I would have a hard time, hard time offering that advice or opinion to somebody that hadn't asked what can I do to change? Yeah, yeah, I see that because it's difficult. It, it, it's some, it's someone that's gonna beat their head against the wall over and over again, and it's such a shame because when you face someone like that, it's you know that you're in it for a fight, and at the same time, at least in my experiences, not letting that get to you because the a person like that or someone with that type of attitude can be very destructive. Like it, it's a doomsday scenario with them. So it's either they win or everybody loses, which makes it very complicated, at least from what I've seen. So I'm wondering if when you have a situation that's that delicate, how do you handle it? Well, so with somebody like that, everything is always in writing, right? Every phone call is followed up with an email or a letter. It says, you know, here's what we just talked about, because usually people like that, you, you have a limited ability to trust, um, trust what, what they're doing. So that's how I handle it. And then you, you just have to make sure that everything you're doing is by the book and that you're not putting yourself in a position where you're asking for extensions on deadlines, because you're probably not going to get them from that lawyer. It doesn't really change the way that I would operate too much on a case. Um, cause you're, you know, you're going to be well-prepared. You're just going to do everything, uh, everything a little bit more buttoned up than you would with somebody who, you know, is really just concerned about getting to the right result. Um, you know, and I hate to say with the least amount of effort, but with the least amount of effort, like, um, if I can get you a hundred thousand dollar settlement and it takes me three months and I got you the same hundred thousand dollar settlement and it took me 
15 months and and $10,000 of costs, which one are you happier with, right? Um, so I, there's a lot of value in, in understanding if the person on the other side from you wants the same, um, wants the same result. And if they do, we can work together towards it. And if, if they don't want, you know, the, the most efficient result for their client, that's okay. You just, you just have to understand that that's the rules that we're going to be operating by. You know, I ask, I, I, I like asking this type of questions because it does give me a picture of what kind of lawyer are you and what kind of law practice do you like having and what can people expect when they're working with you? So now I have a, a better idea of even if we're in the mattresses and we're fighting with someone that doesn't want to let go, I think I have a better picture of why could I expect when working with Brian Glass, which is something very interesting because I see someone that's very centered no matter what's going on out there. And I think that's part of the goal. Like true peace, it's not about being calm all the time. It's about knowing how to remain centered when everything around you is chaos. So the one thing that I do notice about you is that, that that's at least how I interpret it. I might be wrong, just correct me if I am. Uh, but I see you as a very centered and focused person today. So I'm wondering if you've already answered this, uh, it wouldn't actually surprise me, but I do want to dig in a little bit deeper and just like put a pin on it. How do you manage to center yourself? I'm, it's just natural. So I I wish, um, I actually, Joe, I'm working on becoming less centered. I'm, I'm working on um, feeling more of the extremes of emotion. Wow. So, you know, I, I, my, my personal philosophy is pretty deeply rooted in stoic philosophy, right? Okay. I can't, I can't always change the circumstances, but I can change how I react to it. And, and one of the things that I worked on this year is, is feeling more of the highs and lows because I can, I can kind of get into, get into the middle and just cruise. And I think for me, that's, that's a little bit easier, but I would like to expand and, and have, you know, have a lot more laughter and have some more tears because that's part of human experience. So, uh, so I'm actually working on being less centered. So if you have any, if you have any tips on that, I'll take them. <laughs> well, <laughs> my tips for being less centered, I would say just go with the flow, but I'm thinking that you also know how to do that very well. And mm -hmm. now that you mentioned that you, you have a very stoic nature, I can tell like, like for people that are watching the podcast, you, of course you can tell as well. So I like the fact that you like challenging yourself. I wouldn't say that I have a tip. I think you're already doing what you need to do because if you are already on your comfort zone, uh, not in a bad way by being a centered person, the fact that you're looking to expand that and to go from out of that just tells me that you're reaching a different level of experience in your life. So you want something a little bit more complete for yourself. I think that's entirely, uh, entirely worth it. I, uh, the effort is worth it. Uh, what you're going to gain from it is worth it and, and i believe someone that's doing that type of work it's just gonna it speaks a lot about your maturity and the type of person that you want to become so that exercise of what's going to happen in the next three years in the next seven years in the next 10 years i'm going to hold myself accountable and now i'm jumping outside of my comfort zone it tells me about someone that's doing a lot to overall improve uh, so I believe it's part of that search of finding oneself and finding your own voice and in, in, in your own strength. And I believe that you've accomplished that. So I hope that everybody else that's watching and listening to this can also listen to that because uh, you're 
your record of success, it just speaks for itself. So guys, visit uh, Ben Glass uh, Law Firm, check out the website, you'll know exactly what I mean. And just listening to the different types of stories that you have to tell, it also tells me a lot. So before I wrap up, uh, I'm wondering if there's one important thought that you'd like sharing about this conversation, about the person that you are, about the type of law that you like practicing, or would you have any advice to people that are out there? Yeah, so um, good question. I, you know, I think I think my chief advice would be what we talked about is like, number one is knowing yourself and knowing what you want and and forgetting for a little bit about what your employer wants out of you, you know, what your spouse wants out of you, what your family and your friends want, like, what is it that would actually make you happy? And then trying to chart a course to that, that involves all of those people, or, you know, or involves letting some of those people go. Um, because not all of your friends want you to be successful, right? Um, and so, so, but all of that starts with figuring out what is it that you want out of the next couple of years of your life. Brian Glass, ladies and gentlemen. Brian. Thank you, I'd Joe. Like to, thank you. Thank you. Thank you as well. Thank you for your time. Uh, last thing, which is, I think it's important as well. Please let people know where they can find you and what you can do to them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Um, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Glass. And then let me get you my Instagram because I always forget it. Uh, Brian Glass ESQ on Instagram. Well, you know where to find him, guys. Uh, Brian, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I hope that we get you as a return guest in the future. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation. An hour just kind of flew by. So thanks again <laughs> for joining us and see you next time, I guess. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Law Firm Movers and Shakers, where we interview successful law firms and business owners. If you found anything interesting during our latest episode, feel free to share. If you know someone that would make an awesome guest, tag them on any of our social media. You can also tag me on any post or guest suggestion, and I'll share a free resource with you. If you found the show entertaining, show it by subscribing, giving us a thumbs up, a rating, or a review. This means the world to us. Want to know more? Visit our website at getstaffedup.com and make sure you follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look for Get Staffed Up. Visit podcast.getstaffedup.com slash podcast dash guest to be on our show. Thank you for listening. This is Joe, signing off.